welcome to the bazaar and details. Nope. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the bizarre and fascinating details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and this is Darcy. Hey, what's up? What up, Darcy? I'm good. I'm on my second glass of wine, so I'm feeling great. Pretty good by this point, <laughs> I'm right? feeling exactly medium. I was feeling pretty low before, so this is an upgrade. And I had some delicious chips. Fe- Wait, why were you feeling low? I'm just exhausted. <laughs> my life is just, I'm so tired all the time. So if you, if you just tuned in today for the first time ever, which, what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, Darcy is a PhD student. Who clearly makes about, terrible decisions by the fact that Darcy is a PhD student. <laughs> <laughs> what are you studying again? I'm studying biomechanics. Yeah, yeah. so it's not easy. No. It's like some scientific shit where you really got to put a lot of work in. Yeah. Yeah. And this is definitely why I have her as my co-host on the podcast. <laughs> I need some someone smart to be part of this duo. And somebody that's <laughs> like, uh, what time are we recording? I completely forgot. I don't know what day it is. <laughs> yeah. So Darcy is basically both the brains and the brawn. And <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just the person who puts the money up to host the podcast on a platform. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just a person with an unnatural interest in true crime. You, you're the, the concept creator. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> See, the thing is, people, Darcy and I talked about this shit and true crime in general as soon as we met each yeah, other. Yeah, pretty much right? immediately. Mm-hmm. And we discovered that we both had a very unhealthy interest in it. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I would literally sit at work and look up, like, Albert Fish and, like, s- try to find new serial killers that I'd never heard before. And I would look them up on Wikipedia and just sit there for yeah. hours. And then each one would link to another one. Uh-huh. And then I would just, like, read the next one and the next one. And I was, like, off on some rabbit hole about these fucking Peruvian serial killers <laughs> before I knew what was going on. And I was like, wow, yeah. this is so interesting. But anyway, we digress. Today's show. Got some interesting stuff. Let's chat a little bit about this particular case that I found first, which I was absolutely fucking horrified by. Okay. I found this case on Yahoo News UK. And granted, I typically don't look at Yahoo News. I mean, I look at it, but I don't necessarily use it as a firsthand source. Mm-hmm. But there was an article by Jimmy Nushbuga. Sure. Sorry if I slaughtered, sorry if I slaughtered your name, Jimmy. The article is titled, Drunk Mom Whose Baby Son Died After She Took Him Clubbing Was Freed from Jail on Appeal. Oh, my gosh. A mother whose four-week-old baby died after she took him out on a drinking binge and fell asleep on top of him has been freed from jail on appeal. Marina Tilby, 26, was initially jailed for two years and four months in June after after admitting child cruelty through willful neglect. Her son, Darian, was rushed to hospital March 29, 2017, after she was found lying on him after a night out partying. Oh, my God. Doctors, doctors battled to save the baby. He was later pronounced dead. The judge for the appeal told the court that Tilby and her sister drank Guinness in a pub before heading to the clubhouse around 8.30 p.m. Witnesses saw Tilby holding the baby while dancing, and a CCTV footage showed her holding him above her head and throwing him in the air before catching him. What? The sisters met three men who were staying at the caravan park where they went and went back to their caravans at the end of the evening. 
clearly she was so drunk and inebriated that she fed her son before putting him down on a double bed and then went to sleep next to him in the early hours of March 30th. When her sister came back to look for her a short while later, she found Tilby laying on top of the baby who was unresponsive Mm. with blood on his nose. Despite efforts to wake her, Tilby was unable to be roused from her exhausted slumber. What the fuck? From her drunken stupor. The baby was taken to the hospital where he was later pronounced dead. Medical evidence was unable to rule out the possibility that his death was caused by sudden infant death syndrome before she had rolled on him. Yeah, right. Like, what are the odds of that shit? So that's why she was released on appeal, because they couldn't determine the exact cause of death? Yeah. And this is British law, so it's a little bit different. But um, impact statements from the baby's father made it clear he would have looked after his son on the night in question if he had been asked. Clearly, the mother and father are not together. Right. The judge said physiological reports revealed Darian's death had a significant impact on Tilby's mental health and she had suffered deep depression. Oh, really? Like, I feel so bad for you. Sentencing in June, she was told she had shown deliberate disregard for her son's welfare. Her attorney argued her sentence was too long and could have been suspended in the circumstances for the case. The judge said her offering was... her offending was one evening of neglect involving a lapse of judgment rather than a prolonged period and that this baby was otherwise well cared for. Tilby has now been freed from prison after judges in the Court of Appeal in London reduced her sentence to 16 months and then suspended it. How could she have a pattern, a well-established pattern of caring for her baby when the baby was four weeks old? I don't know. But the judge allowed her appeal and said that the original sentence was manifestly excessive in light of her genuine remorse and her own suffering. The court ordered her to undergo supervision by the probation service for one year. So she got one year of probation. The actual fuck. What do you think about this case? I think that's one of the most horrifying things I think I've ever heard. And the judge's comments remind me of the Brock Turner case. Just ridiculous. Like absolutely fucking ridiculous. You're taking into account the perpetrator of this crime's (laughs) like reputation. Four week history. Yeah. Yeah. I And you're like, well she suffered enough and that's pretty much what the Brock Turner judge said. Well he has a swimming career ahead of him. We can't we can't ruin his career based on this crime he committed, which was rape. And this woman, like she suffered enough. She has emotional distress because she couldn't be responsible enough to not get drunk and fall asleep on top of her baby. And there were plenty of people who I'm sure would have cared for this baby. If she would have said, Hey, I need an evening out to go unwind and let loose, let my hair down. There are plenty of people that probably would have taken care of that baby. God, that's awful. Just be responsible, people. Like, I just find this so irresponsible and so just disgusting that I, I just, I'm horrified. And if there is any case that was a cause for saying people should have to have a license to have a baby, this is it right here. And there's so many people who struggle to get pregnant. Right? That... It's to just, conceive, you, that want a baby yeah. so desperately. And you hear and these stories and you're just like... People like this just fuck it up for everyone and just make you lose your faith in humanity. That's so sad. That's so sad. I mean, I get it. Parenting is hard. Having a baby is hard. Being a parent is hard. 
you need time off. You need time to unwind. You need time to de-stress. But even if she so didn't have a relationship with the father, she was clearly co-parenting with him because he says he would have watched the baby had he been asked. He was never asked. Right. She decided she wanted to go out to a bar with her four-week-old infant and throw it in the air. Yeah. Disgusting. Absolutely fucking disgusting. Get a babysitter for fuck's sake. I mean, it sounds like there are plenty of people that would have cared for this baby. Yeah. At no cost to her, including the baby's father. Yeah. For her to go out and have an evening out. Like, are you that selfish? And she's 26, so it's not like she's like 18 or 19. Right. right. Like, she should know a little bit better. Okay. Enough said. She's disgusting. Another dumb case. <laughs> Got another one for you oh that boy. you're just going to be like, what the actual fuck? Casey Baker wrote an article for People magazine. It came out in September on September 11th, 2019. It's called Florida Teen Allegedly Stole Parents' Debit Card to Fund Murder for Hire Plot Against Them. <sighs> you see this picture of this girl and you're just like, what the actual fuck? This is, this is uh, the epitome of stupid. So evidently she is facing charges after she stole her parents' debit card and used the money she withdrew to pay for two different people to kill them in a failed murder-for-hire scheme. Okay, on Tuesday, Alyssa Hatcher, 17, the 17-year-old kid of Umatia in Central Florida, was arrested and charged with two counts of criminal solicitation for murder. Authorities learned of Hatcher's botched plan when a student at the same high school told a, a sheriff's resource officer that Hatcher had given her friend a lot of money to find someone to kill her parents, the affidavit claims. So get this. Investigators discovered that she had allegedly stolen her parents' debit card and completed two transactions. One was for $503 and one was for $926.40. She gave this money to two different individuals, allegedly to kill her parents. Her boyfriend told investigators he'd seen her early Monday morning in a known drug house where she told him she wanted to murder her mom and stepdad. During a recorded interview with investigators at her home, she allegedly admitted to the plot. She revealed she'd used $100 to buy cocaine and gave $400 to a friend for someone to commit the murders. She went on to say that since the act was never carried out, she gave the other $900 to a black male to kill her parents. Upon learning of the allegations against her daughter, her parents, a nurse and a police lieutenant, so her fucking dad was a police officer, wow. told authorities they wanted to prosecute for charges. Fuck yeah. The parents are... The parents are not identified. The police have yet identified a motive for the alleged murder for hire plot. No absolute fucking reason. I can't even, this is just so crazy. It's such a sad case. She had spent some of her high school career on the cheerleading team. Her Instagram account shows and the teen posted a picture of herself with a caption ruthless in the last post of herself. She basically sounds like a spoiled little brat. It sounds What's like... What's your thoughts on this? It sounds like her parents were strict with her, or what she would consider strict. They were probably just being responsible, good parents. And she decided she didn't want to deal with her strict parents anymore. And so she stole from them. She basically tried to use their money to finance their own murder. So, number one... How the fuck do you think you're going to have somebody murdered for, like, $1,500? If okay. it sounds like First she's, question. like, chilling at a drug house, that doesn't surprise me. That, that 
you could find somebody that would do it for that little amount of money, especially if you're dealing with like hard addicts that just want to, really? f- to get to their next fix. Yeah. I, I guess I'm just not even familiar with that scene. And then the second question is how the fuck do you think your parents are not going to notice that $1,500 just leaves their bank account? This is what's like, this is what's wild. Cause I guess, so it's a little different than, than, than when I initially read it. So I read that she stole $1,500 that, and she, she gave like 400 or whatever to somebody. And then when that, that person didn't end up doing it, she gave like 900 more. So like, basically she's, she's netting. I thought she like withdrew $1,500 and then is like doling out $1,300 worth. And so I'm like, you stole $1,500 and you're basically netting $200 for this. Because you spent so, you so much of this already. Do you think she did the cocaine first and was like, oh, I'm fucking invincible. Let's kill everyone. I or do you think, think the cocaine was just like, hey, I'm an addict. Yeah. I'm going to get my fix. Yeah. And then have the courage to do this shit. I think that the cocaine was probably, I don't think that she did cocaine and then was like, I need to kill my parents. I think she was like, I'm in this scene now and I want to kill my parents and I'm want this money to use cocaine. Like, I think that they were almost unrelated in the sense that one did not, like, beget the other. But I think she wanted to, like, she got into the drug scene and her parents were strict. Maybe they grounded her or maybe they took her phone. You know what I mean? And she was like, they're too fucking strict. How long do you think she planned this shit? I don't. I don't think she planned it. You think it was pretty spontaneous? Yeah. You don't think this is brewing for weeks and weeks and weeks? Maybe a week. I don't think this is something that she, like, was talking about for a long time. I really don't know about young women these days. It just, when I hear these sorts of stories, I'm just so discouraged because this is the generation that's coming after us that's supposedly going to take care of us when we get older. And I'm scared. I mean, I don't know that I want to go that far. I think that there's... There's fucked up situations in every generation. I think, especially in Florida, you have sunshine law, so you hear about a lot more stuff coming out of Florida than you would in other places. I think this is probably something that is not specific to this generation below us. Um, and I don't think it's indicative or representative of any particular generation or geographic location. I think this is just something that we ha- we heard about because it happened in Florida, and we have access to, they're much more public with their crimes because of the sunshine laws that make everything public. Um, It wouldn't surprise me to find that somebody at our age also did this at all. You know, I don't know. I really don't know. I think that a lot of young people today feel like they're invincible, that they can pretty much do anything. That's just smarter than everyone. They're smarter than everyone. They're self-entitled that they deserve everything without having to put any of the work in. I just, I'm very, nervous about this generation i think that's every believes that everything everything should be handed to them i think that's every generation don't work. with young people you're 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 a teenager you think that you think you do think you're invincible so i don't i don't necessarily right, think that that's like indicative of her upbringing or generation i think that's everybody mm-hmm. that is that age thinks that no, way because when i got out of college my myself and my group of friends were like hey we got to put in work we got to get into the bottom we got to work our way up to the top we got to put in the hours you start at the bottom and you work your way up that's how you do it that's how our parents but did that's it when you got out of college we knew that's that when that's, you were 15 we knew that we had to do that 
When I was 15, I was like the same way. I knew I had to go to college. I knew I had a specific path that I had to do. And if I didn't do that, then I was going to go nowhere. I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm less likely to blame a generational thing, I think. I don't know. Because, I mean, she's 15. This is the generation that believes they should get a trophy. Everyone should get a trophy. No, I, I don't think that's true. I think that the trophy thing is that the parents, which are our generation, think their kids should get trophies. No, it's fucked up. In any way you look at it, this is fucked up. It's it you is fucked up. You want to kill your parents, yeah. really? It's super fucked up. Well, I think that cases today are a little bit messed up as well. But this is—I got a couple interesting ones for you today. I don't think you'd ever—you've ever heard of these cases. Um, I found these particular two interesting because they happened in a town that I grew up in for a number of years. Okay. And today I'm gonna talk about the murders of Michelle Welsh and Jennifer Bastian. And in all fairness, we recorded this episode months back for the reasons that I'm just about to talk about. And it was before we got our brand new microphones and there were some details that I kind of left out inadvertently that I really felt were important to the case. So we are re-recording this. So Darcy has heard this, but only because I told her about it. This was not a, not a case that she was familiar with um, prior to right. me bringing this to her attention. So yeah. March 26, 1986. And I was a young child at this time. Okay. Welsh, Michelle, was the third of three sisters. She was the oldest one and the most responsible out of the three sisters. She was approximately 12 years old in March of 1986. Okay. She was playing with her two sisters in Puget Park. Puget Park is not Point Defiance. If you are a local um, resident of the Tacoma area, you know that Puget Park is a few miles from the Point Defiance Park. Evidently, Welsh and her three sisters had a piano lesson. They had recently moved to the area with their mother. She was a single mom raising the three girls on her own. She had just gotten a job in real estate and moved them into this new house. They were all very excited about it. But at the same time, the mom was very, very interested in making sure that her daughters were responsible. Mm -hmm. They took music lessons. They were expected to do well in school. And they had begged their mom to let them go to Puget Park and do a little bit of playing before their piano lesson. So they had a couple of hours before their lesson was about to begin. And they were like, Mom, please, 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 can we ride our bikes to Puget Park and do a little playing before our lesson? Mom reluctantly agreed and was like, okay, as long as you all stick together and you can go, but you got to be back in time for your piano lesson. Mm -hmm. The three girls went to the park together and started playing when they realized they forgot their lunches at home. So the oldest sister, Michelle, was like, okay, I'll go back and get the lunches. You guys keep playing. I'll be back in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. So Michelle goes back and gets the lunches. In the meantime, the two younger sisters decide they have to go to the bathroom. And excuse me, because there are no bathrooms in the area, they needed to go to a local business nearby to use the restroom. So they got on their bikes and rode to the nearest business where there was a restroom available for them to use. Okay. In the mean, in the meantime, Michelle got back to the park and saw that her sisters were missing and was like, what the heck? So she starts looking around for them, puts the lunches on the table. And then the sisters get back to the park after they use the restroom and they find Michelle's bike and their lunches on the table, but no Michelle. Oh no. 
So they have a little bit of a whistle call that they would do for each other when they were supposedly nearby and they wanted to get the attention of one that was close but not with them so that they could, you know, if they knew she was anywhere nearby, she would respond with that responsive whistle. Okay. They did the whistle and Michelle, they didn't hear any response from her, so they knew something was wrong. Mm -hmm. At that point, they called the police and... The police immediately knew, hey, we've got a bike here. The girl is missing. She's not responding. She wouldn't take off on her own. They waited till dark, though, before they called in the search and rescue team. And the search dogs were released to try to look for her as well. And they found Michelle's body in the bushes oh, near no. a fire pit. Okay. She was not very far from where the table was and the lunches and whatnot in a little kind of wooded area. She was beaten, sexually assaulted, and her throat had been cut. Oh, my God. Witnesses saw a man watching from the distance and created sketches of the... But they never located him. Real quick, sorry. If you hear squeaking sure. in the background, my dog has found her chew toy. Um, oh, she Just... But we'll cut this out. But just letting you, Sarah, know that if you hear squeaking, it's thought, yes, she found her toy. Okay. <laughs> so in the meantime, Michelle's mom has no answers. She gets a gun because she's terrified that somebody's out mm -hmm. there and watching them. By summer, they had still not found the killer. Oh, my God. Police are still searching. And as a young child during this time... I remember hearing about this case and parents warning their children that they weren't allowed to go out because this girl had been murdered mm. very close to where I grew up. Let me finish the second case and I'll kind of explain to you why there's even more urgency and kind of fear on the part of my parents. So summer comes to play and they still have not found any clues about who potentially could have killed Michelle. There was DNA at the scene, but when they put it into the system, there, uh, excuse me, there was DNA at the scene, but they did not have the technology at that time mm -hmm. to process DNA. It was 1986. Yeah. Technology was like very rudimentary at that point. Fast forward to August 1986. Jenny, age 13. She's an athletic kind of a girl. She's also blonde haired and blue eyed, just like Michelle. She loved biking, and she was training for the, the San Juan bike ride. She was trying to train on, the day in, in that, on that day in August, and she had asked a friend to ride with her along the five-mile loop in Five Mile Drive, which is in Point Defiance Park. Okay. She wanted, she wanted to train for this San Juan bike ride. Her friend backed out on her at the last minute. Jenny calls her dad. She didn't, I don't think she asked her mom first. She called her dad and asked permission to do the five-mile ride along in Point Defiance Park to train and be home by 6.30. Like, her parents were not super comfortable with her going out alone, mm -hmm. particularly considered, considering what had happened, but they thought, okay, this is a paved path. She should be okay. It's still light outside. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as she stays on the path, there's traffic that goes through here, and she should be okay. She wrote a note to her mom saying she was going to be home by 6.30. Let me just really quickly give you a little bit of information about Point Defiance Park. It was about two miles from where the first murder happened. Okay. It is a large urban part of Tacoma, Washington. The park covers about 760 acres. Jeez, that's huge. 
It currently receives about 3 million visitors a year, and it was probably slightly smaller than that back in 1986, but there was still quite a bit of visitors going in and out. So there was a lot of traffic okay. in that park, partic- particularly on Five Mile. And drive. during the summer, too. Correct. Okay. So the park includes a zoo, an aquarium, a rose garden, rhododendron gardens, beaches, trails, boardwalks, boathouses, ferry dock, an off-leash park, and a standing a stand of old growth forest along five mile drive. Okay. Okay. So the, the area where she was going to go ride is within a stand of old growth forest. So the path is not out in the open. There is forest on all sides of it. Mm. The park is home to animals, forest, wildlife, and it is the largest urban park in Pierce County, which is where Tacoma is. Okay. It is often frequented by joggers, cyclists, and hikers. So there's a lot of traffic in and out of there by both people on foot, on bike, in cars. It began as a military reservation in 1840s and was actually turned in officially into a park in 1888 and has been one ever since. Oh, wow. Okay. It is a beautiful area. We used to play there quite frequently when I was a little girl. Um, I got a lot of this information from an episode of Dateline NBC, which was called Evil is Watching. Back to Jenny Bastian. She went on this bike ride, left a note saying she'd be home by 6.30 while she went on a bike ride in Point Defiance Park. Her parents felt that it was somewhat safe. Her older sister, Teresa, was 15 years old at the time, worked as a counselor in the park. So they were like, okay, this is not too bad. And I remember as a young child, we played in this park. We went on many trips there. We hiked, we biked, we camped. We did all kinds of stuff in that Mm -hmm. park. And we always felt relatively safe. It seemed like a very innocuous area. There was never kind of a fear of like a boogeyman in the bushes sort of a thing until this happened. Even after the murder of Michaela or Michelle? No, when the murders happened, that's when we started to be afraid of this park. But until that point, we were wandering around in there. We were playing. We were just doing, we had no fears, no cares in the world. So Jenny's mother gets a phone call in the evening and it's from Jenny's dad who says that she is not home yet. They immediately call the police who start looking in Point Defiance Park because they know that's where she was supposed Mm -hmm. to be. By 11 p.m., search dogs are set onto the scene and they're given clothing for the son of Jenny. However, they cannot find her anywhere. Three days pass and they actually closed Point Defiance Park during that time to search for Jenny. And I actually remember when that happened. It was absolutely horrifying. All the local news channels were covering it. They, it was scary. Hundreds of people were searching the park for this girl. And just kind of set, like, the the kind of environment. This is a... Re- so Ted Bundy has already been caught, but they know that he was he was active in Seattle, Tacoma area, right? Right. And is this the same time as well, the Green River from. Killer also? I don't think we were thinking about the Green River Killer yet. I think he was just sort of a, a whisper okay. at that point. Okay. So he was working, but it wasn't really common knowledge at gotcha. that point. Gotcha, okay. At least, or maybe I was too young to really hear sure. what the adults were talking about, because I was a, a little kid. Sure. But they found Jenny's body on August 28th in a thickly wooded area near a footpath. She had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and then her body had been hidden, as well as her bike, under mm. brush and leaves. Kids in Tacoma lost their freedom after that, basically. Right. So the first one was kind of like they felt like maybe it was a fluke. We don't know what's happening. But when the second one goes missing, it's like, oh, shit, something's bad is going on here. 
and everyone believed that sorry go, both these girls have been killed by the yeah, same okay person. that was what I was going to ask so now Michelle you said her her throat was slit but Jenny's was not she was strangled, she was strangled. okay right so one had had her throat slit the other one had been strangled okay. both of them had been sexually assaulted and beaten Okay. DNA was only in its infancy at that point, as I mentioned earlier. So both of these murders went cold. There was no, they, at the time that these bodies were discovered, there was no evidence of DNA found right. on Jenny's body. There was some semen on Michelle's body, but they did not have DNA technology back then to be able to put that into a database. Yeah. They were just doing like so blood both, typing. Bo- right. Yeah. So both these cases obviously went cold at that point. Okay. In the meantime, all of the rest of us are just, like, freaking out. What was interesting to me is both these girls were prepubescent, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, very innocent-looking, attractive young girls. And the thing is, I was also blonde-haired, blue-eyed, same age yeah. group. Wow. It could have been me. It very well could have been me, which was even more frightening. Ter- yeah. Because if you look at the pictures, you compare the pictures of these two young girls and my school pictures... Like, we could have been all twins. That's so scary. It's ridiculous. Very, very scary. Fast forward, as these cases go cold for a couple of decades, dramatic changes start to happen in about 2013. Tacoma starts to gather a cold case group in the police department who starts looking at and examining the cases of Michelle and Jenny. They still believe at that point that it was committed by the same person. Mm -hmm. Are we starting to maybe get a little suspicion that something's a little off? It does seem like you're hinting at something, yes. So the new detective that is in charge of this case at that time had also grown up in Tacoma, just like myself, and had become a police officer because she wanted to help solve Mm -hmm. crimes like Jenny and Michelle. Wow. So she starts re-examining the evidence. She goes back to the scene. She starts looking at the pictures. She starts really, like, giving everything a very close eye. She notices that Jenny's bike was found laying on its side, camouflaged by fern fronds a few feet away. Jenny was found down a path in a hidden shelter, kind of like an igloo. He'd made sort of a cave out of vegetation. Hmm. So obviously he spent a little bit of time creating this cave. Whereas... Michelle was kind of found more out in the open. He didn't spend as much time. So she starts to think, okay, well, I'm going to put that in the back of my mind and reserve that for later. Uh She starts looking again at the persons of interest that they found back when the case was initially opened. And there were 2,300 people they were looking at. There were people in and around the area who had been accused of sex crimes or had violent crimes in their past. Mm -hmm. They took the semen found in Michelle's body and did the testing, threw it into CODIS, and found that nothing matched. Mm. No matches in CODIS in the DNA database. Then they take a second look at Jenny's swimsuit that she was found in when she was murdered, and they found semen in the crotch. They take that and throw it into the system as well to get tested, Clearly, they thought the same person would have given both of those DNA samples and left those samples on the body. They get the information back from the testing and are shocked when they see that it is two different people. Oh, my gosh. No one suspected that there were two monsters in Tacoma and not just one. And at that point, everyone is just like, holy shit. Yeah, that's got to be like... 
scarier because you have, at first you're thinking it's just one person that's doing these awful, awful things. And now you're, now you know, it's at least two people doing, doing awful, awful things. They didn't find that till 30 years later. So So they thought it was the same person for approximately 30 years. And then they horrifyingly find out it's two different people. Then they're like, shit, the kind of person that commits a crime like this does not usually commit just one crime. So they are like, this is a waiting game. This person has either been convicted of something else and they're in prison right now and we can find them. Or it's only a matter of time before they get caught doing something else and eventually their DNA gets into Mm -hmm. the system. Like back at the time when this happened, they did not collect DNA evidence from every prisoner. Mm -hmm. Now, I believe it is a mandate that prisoners that are convicted of violent crimes, particularly ones involving sexual deviance of some nature, are required to give DNA to be put into the CODIS database. I think that's a a state-by-state thing. I'm not sure that every state does that, but more states are doing it. Right, and they're starting to realize how important that is to be able to link these people, because some travel from state to state and think they can get Mm -hmm. away with it. In any case... Jenny's mom starts helping as well. She's got every incentive to help the team. She starts organizing. She's not allowed to work on the case directly, obviously, but she's trying to help do whatever she can to get attention on this, to keep this in the news and the media so that people keep looking Mm -hmm. at it. And several years after this cold case group gets started, they decide that they are going to consult a forensic genealogist. That is essentially when you upload DNA profile into a national database and criminologists can search that database for similarities in genes. Where have we heard this story before? Link, right. They can link unknown people to possible relatives with last names. This is also how they found the Golden State Killer. And how they're solving a As, lot of crimes these days. Yes, exactly. They sent DNA from Michelle and Jenny on the crime scene from their murders and there were no exact matches, but there were some possible family names that popped up on this list. One of them, the last name Washburn jumped out to the investigators because he had come forward as a witness back in 86. He had been a jogger in Point Defiance Park who said he saw someone who matched the description of Michelle's killer. This threw investigators off because he was linked to the DNA in Jenny's murder months after the tip was called in about Michelle. He saw someone in Point Defiance Park who matched the killer's description on the scene of the other death. Right, so he came forward after Jenny's death. Saying he yeah. saw someone in a different area that matched the description. Right, of the police sketch from Michelle. Right. Yeah, okay. Got it. Okay, Got it. we clear yep. on that? But this threw investigators off because he matched the DNA in Jenny's murder in Point Defiance Park. Wow. So this was super confusing, and everyone's like, why the fuck would he come forward yeah. with this information? Why would he do that? He was pretty much in the clear. He didn't match the description of the sketch. Yeah. There was no... They couldn't link him to the DNA evidence, so why would he do so that? So he's, like, trying to throw investigators off by, by trying to make it look as if this was the same person from Michelle. I think he yeah. was, and I think it, sometimes murderers and people that do this kind of thing want to be involved mm-hmm. in the investigation. They want credit. They want people to look at them. Yeah. 
they want attention. So he obviously wanted attention in this case. So he said, oh, I saw somebody in this other case when he was actually a suspect mm. in the second case. Okay. Detectives in the meantime are working in overdrive and they are like trying to use whatever tools they have available to them. New tools, new technology. They contact Parabon. Mm-hmm the Parabon company, which generates computer images according to the DNA profiles that they collect at the crime scenes into images of what suspects possibly look like. Let's talk about that for a second because there are, there's two different types of characteristics for, for DNA, right? So you have your genotype, which is going to tell you if you have, like, you're, it's going to tell you, make it, make, it's going to explain your genetic characteristics, and then you have your right. phenotype, which is going to explain your physical characteristics. So that's going to explain right. things like bone structure or, or um, eye color or hair color or things like that. And that's what this Parabon group does. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So they basically came up with an image of what they thought the killer looked like according to the DNA markers within the semen sample that they recovered at the site. So things like high cheekbones. Yeah. And dark and hair, uh, height, blue eye. They can narrow. Yeah, they can narrow it down to something as specific as eye color, freckles, skin mm-hmm. tone, nose shape. I mean, they get pretty fucking exact with these displays that they do. These computer generated images. It's pretty incredible. And this is going to be it's, the next big thing in um, solving crimes like genetically is going to be this this genetic phenotyping. So, yes, absolutely agree. So essentially they're doing this to narrow down the main Mm. list that they have of suspects. They're using whatever techniques they have at their disposal to try to find additional clues to take a second look at the over 2,000 separate suspects on their list. But all these guys were scattered all over the country Mm. and the FBI had to track them down because they wanted to eliminate as many as they could. And they started just asking these guys for DNA samples Mm. so they could eliminate them. they, they got, already had his name because he was coming forward as a witness. Correct. Which, like, so, when when people do this, it doesn't, like, it's crazy because they need to be involved in some way and try, they, they feel like they're controlling the narrative. But what you've essentially done is you've just given them your identification to put on a list of people that they've talked to about the case. So he thinks they're searching for Michelle mm-hmm. Welsh's killer. And he knows he didn't do Michelle's killer. So he's like, here, you can have my DNA. I'll voluntarily give you a wow. sample. They, they collected 160 different samples to compare. Okay? okay. And they're like, they have to do the testing for these 160 samples, which included Washburn's profile. Okay. And he thinks, oh, I'm in the clear because they're not looking for mm-hmm. Jenny's killer. They're looking for Michelle's killer. I'm wow. good. So they have to do these DNA samples in small batches. Mm-hmm. They do them in, in batches of 20 to the crime mm-hmm. lab, 20 at a time. But it takes a while. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes weeks and weeks for them to get the results from these mm-hmm. tests. It, a year passes, and the samples have all come back with the exception of one final batch, and they still don't have any matches, and they're really discouraged. And the detective that was working on the cold case file retired. She was like, I can't do this anymore. I... I I've lost hope. Right before she leaves, she sends one final small batch with the remaining 18 samples, and she retires. 
25 days after her retirement and her replacement takes over, she gets a call. They say, we've got a match on the Jennifer Bastian case, and it's Robert Washburn. The witness who phoned in the tip, <laughs> he's a match. Wow. He killed Jenny. He, his DNA was in her right. bathing suit. And his DNA profile matches perfectly. He had moved to Illinois. He had committed no further crimes or trouble. He had voluntarily given his DNA. He was arrested at home. And when they came to get him, he reacted very scared and nervous. He was swearing, I didn't kill that little girl. So, like, way to give right. himself up, like, almost immediately. And this was 32 years after the murder. They finally got this guy into test. Into so Tacoma PD shows up at his house in Illinois, and the first thing he says is, he's like, I didn't kill that little girl. <laughs> Super right? inconspicuous. So, because he thinks they're talking about Michelle. Wow. Not Jenny. So he killed the second little right. girl. So in the meantime, the other testing that was given, the genetic genealogy narrows it down to the two brothers. Michelle's family is getting very discouraged. They're just like, we need to figure this out and we need to figure it out Mm -hmm. quick. In pops Gary Hartman. Just as an aside, I think it's always a good idea if you ever talk to law enforcement, just immediately open with, I didn't do it. Like, I have a neighbor who lives right? downstairs from me who is a police officer, and whenever I see him, I'm like, hey, I didn't do it. Just, you know, keep, keep, yeah. keep your name in the clear. Just right. always... Keep, it, keep everyone Yeah, just toes. always want to make sure you open with that. It's super not suspicious, and it definitely doesn't make anybody totally. look at you a little bit closer. So fast forward June 20th, 2018... They had narrowed down the two brothers as suspects, and police had been shadowing them for some time. They follow one of the brothers, Gary Hartman, to a restaurant, and they observe him using a napkin. Mm -hmm. As soon as he leaves, they snatch that fucking napkin up and send it to the test, to the lab for testing, and that is Michelle's killer. It matches the DNA found at the crime scene. Wow. Right, just very quickly after they found Jenny's killer, they found Michelle's killer. Thank God. And Michelle's killer, Gary Hartman, was a 67-year-old nurse, and let's make this clear, accused killer, because he has not been convicted yet. Okay. He is a 67-year-old nurse in a psychiatric hospital, working-class kind of guy, no history of violent crime, and neither did Robert Washburn. So both these guys just flew under the radar. Very, very unusual. And nothing's come to light he about pled, either of them since? Nope. He pled not guilty to first-degree murder. As of June 2018, there's been no trial scheduled. I looked and researched and looked online. There's no trial yet, although he has been charged with first-degree murder. There was an update in January 2019 for Robert Washburn. Evidently, as well, the investigation is still ongoing with Gary Hartman, so we will provide updates on that as they become available. January 2019, Robert Washburn pled guilty to first-degree murder. He got a plea bargain. He got a 27-year sentence and 20 years before parole. Okay. The, con- the condition before he was allowed to accept the plea bargain was that he must tell about the murder. And everybody was very disappointed because he just said he grabbed her and killed her. The family kind of was expecting some more details right. and more information about this. They wanted to know why he picked her, why he did this. Did you just get up and felt like you wanted to kill somebody? But he provided nothing. 
How old was he at the time? What was interesting. Uh, he was arrested. Do you know? Um, he was in his 60s okay. as well. Two mild-mannered guys who were basically late 20s, early 30s when they committed these crimes. Hartman, the gentleman, or I don't want to say gentleman, <laughs> Michaela's, Mich- Michelle's killer, Gary Hartman, lived near Michelle. He was arrested at a traffic stop without any sort of incident. He willingly went into custody. I think he pretty much knew they were coming sure. for him. And it was interesting because the gentleman they found with a napkin that they hunted down, they used genetic genealogy, the same as the Golden State Killer. And Washburn, who was Jenny's killer, had given the DNA voluntarily. So had he not given the, the DNA? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. He wasn't on the list of top suspects. They would have gotten to him eventually, you have to think, because he was... He came forward as a witness, so he would have been somebody they would have at least gone back and talked to, right? But it may have taken a long time to get to him. Yeah. It's, they're very sad cases. Prepubescent young pretty girls who had a long life ahead of them that was cut short by two separate monsters. Yeah. And men that didn't appear to have committed any other crimes before or after these incidences. It, it's just horrifying yeah. that people like that exist out there in the world. And I find these cases also very interesting because they, the technology that they, that they used to find these guys, they took the DNA off a napkin. Yeah. They did genetic genealogy. They created images of what these guys looked like. They used every tool in their arsenal. And it's very encouraging. It is encouraging. It's also a little scary at the same time, you know. Why do you Um, say that? Well, and we've talked about this before with the whole genetic genealogy deal. Um, People are, people in law enforcement are encouraging people to upload their DNA, you know, to these, um, or their genetic results to these databases that are open and that law enforcement can use. Um, for this reason, but I'm just, I don't know. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Like, I'm just a little uncomfortable with just giving it out. And I understand it. It's like, it's a positive thing that we're solving these cases, but at the same time, it's just a little bit concerning that you're just giving DNA without like, cause it couldn't, it might, you know, they might not be looking at me for a crime, but if they're looking at somebody from my family, which I'm adopted. It's, this doesn't affect me directly, but it's just a little, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm just, I just, I'm hesitant about it. It's so very new that I'm, I'm just, I just have hesitations, I think. So what could be the downside? Um, clerical mix up. I think primarily, I wouldn't think anybody would, nef- would intentionally nefariously do anything, but lab mix ups happen all the time. People who work in, in labs are not infallible. And something as simple as paperwork or a lab report could get mixed up with somebody and it can ruin your life if you're if you're um, accused or arrested for something that you had absolutely no involvement in. Even, you know, that's what we talked about with uh, the Jacob Jacob Wetterling case is that music teacher. He had no involvement and it ruined his life. Yeah, I think another thing that I I mean. On the whole, I'm supportive of this because I feel like it is a very useful tool for law enforcement 
and that's how they found the Golden mm-hmm. State Killer. But um, just playing the devil's advocate for one brief moment here, I think about the DNA sample that I gave myself, mm-hmm. uh, where you do it. I I can't remember whether it was Twenty Three and Me or one of the other genetic testing companies, and they give you a little tube, and you're supposed to spit into the mm-hmm. tube. And then you send the tube in and they test the tube for your DNA markers. And then you can potentially choose whether you would like that to be included in their national database. What I found a little bit disturbing and my mom and I did the same DNA test from the same company. She bought it for me as a gift and we both came out as matching, even though her last name and my last name are different and we had no links as far as our family. So I knew that mine had to have been Mm -hmm. correct. However, they tell you that you're not supposed to drink for a certain amount of time before you spit into the tube and that you have to create so much saliva and and fill the tube to a certain extent in order for it to fully um, be testable, Mm -hmm. in order for it to give the most accurate results. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't have any fucking saliva. My mouth was dry as a fucking desert when I did the test. And instead of just like, hey, I'm going to wait and like wait till I get more saliva, I just chugged a little bit of water and swished it around in my mouth and then spit the water that I swished in my mouth into the tube. But let's be clear about what it's testing it to though. the appropriate level. Because it's not that it's testing. My understanding is it's not that it's testing your saliva. It's, it's testing the cells from the inside of your mouth. So right. when you swished it around your but mouth, is it going to give you the same? They tell you not to do that. Though. Right. They tell you specifically because not they to want do a that. high concentration of cells in the sample but what they actually but they got the same result yes because they actually don't need so to what test difference does it make? a large amount they're telling you that is a fail safe because they want to make sure they have enough in case something happens in case they need to test it a second time or a third time or what have you they don't need that's why if you give your dna sample to a police officer they just take a dna sw- like a, a cotton swab from the inside of your mouth they don't have you fill up a whole tube that's so that they don't have to do this whole thing of sending it back to you and then you send it back. That's, that's why you have to give that, that amount of saliva because they don't actually need that much from you to test it. Well, what I also think is interesting is you are not required or compelled by law to give a DNA sample in an investigation. Right. If you are convicted of a crime, then you can be compelled to give Or if DNA. they have a warrant if you for are it. Not yeah, correct. But it's pretty rare that they'll give a warrant to demand DNA for. Yeah, somebody. you have to have a pretty Especially high. You have like to meet a, a pretty high standard. So you are not compelled. If somebody comes up to you and says, "Hey, can you give us your DNA?" No. Say no. No. You don't Why have would I to do that. But people don't know. I don't mm-hmm. think. I think when the police tell them to do something, they feel like they need to comply with that whenever possible, or they're going to be a in police trouble. officer. If, a, if anybody in law enforcement asks you for anything. The first thing you should do is ask for a lawyer. And that doesn't mean you're not cooperative. That doesn't mean you, that you are hiding anything. It means that you're exercising your right to have an attorney present whenever you do anything involved with law enforcement. And you. And second of all, if they ask to search your vehicle, say your no, house, say no, you need a, you need they a fucking warrant have to have a warrant. Give me a warrant. That's your fourth amendment, right? So. I don't think most people no. know that. And they feel as though they need to, to go ahead and let people do that because it's a police officer telling them. And it's an authority figure. You want to trust them. But a, a police officer, they right. can lie to you. They can tell you they already have a DNA match for you, that this is just confirming it. They can tell you they already know they have you on film. They, they you, always ask for an attorney present. Just even if you've done nothing wrong, ask for an attorney present and let your attorney 
make those decisions for you because they're the person that went to school and they are the person that passed the bar exam to be qualified to deal with these scenarios. You as a civilian are wholly unqualified (laughs) to deal with these scenarios. And just to be clear, I'm not really qualified either because I wasn't a criminal Mm -hmm. law attorney. (laughs) Now, granted, when you when you graduate from law school and you pass the bar exam in most states, you are presumed to be a general practitioner, which means you can practice just about any area of law at will with the exception of tax law and patent law. You have to have special licenses for those two forms of law. All the other forms of law you can practice with the caveat that you should know what you're doing and not be irresponsible. If you have never freaking studied, taken any courses, done any research on criminal law, and you've primarily been doing family law, and all of a sudden you start deciding to take criminal law cases, you're going to be held in as for malpractice because you don't know anything about criminal law. Even though you took criminal law courses in law school, you don't have any expertise in that. Well, it would be like a general practitioner physician all of a sudden deciding they want to be an orthopedic surgeon. Right. It's that sort of a thing. You should not be irresponsible with throwing your knowledge around and you should educate yourself and make sure that you are prepared to represent adequately Mm -hmm. the types of clients that you are taking Mm -hmm. on. In any case, we digress. One positive thing did come out of this case, besides just the new forms of technology coming into play to solve these two crimes, despite them being cold cases and to finally provide closure for these these grieving families Something called Jennifer and Michelle's law came into play, and it is a new law that was created saying that police can now obtain DNA samples from deceased sex offenders and indecent exposure offenders as well. And they will put these samples into the state and national wow. databases. They're required to get those, and that's one positive thing that has come out of these cases. That's interesting. So, but what there was there a history of indecent exposure or? Sex. Uh, there okay. were not. There were not for these two particular offenders that I know of. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, the the one investigation is still ongoing, oh, okay. so there very well could be stuff in there that we just don't know about yet. These cases were not highly publicized. They were talked about quite a bit in the area in Tacoma, mm-hmm. but they didn't get into a lot of background detail on these two guys. And there very well could be that sort of thing. But regardless of whether there was in this particular case, they have found that historically speaking, typically guys that commit guys or girls that commit crimes like this have a history. It's not just a one off scenario yeah. where there's one murder, one and done. There's usually a history of criminal behavior, escalating criminal activity. Behavior escalates uh-huh. into a murder or a sexual deviant sexually deviant crime like a rape or and indecent exposure is not a minor crime like it's treated as a minor crime but it is absolutely it is linked to sex crimes in the future it goes from yep indecent exposure to voyeurism to sexual assault to murder i mean that's we know that that is a link for the Yes. For Not the most part, yeah. people don't, don't stop with sexual deviant yeah. exposure, that kind of thing. They usually escalate and just get worse and, and worse and worse through the years. And That's not a, everybody a, that does one will do the other, but the, a link has been shown. In the vast majority of cases, Yeah, a link yes. has been shown, for sure. So, rip, rest in peace, Jennifer yeah. and Michelle. Um, these were two very, very scary cases that impacted my family and me when I was growing up 
And the fact that they looked so similar to me just was a very scary thing as well. And I'm very, very sad that these sorts of things happen, but relieved and glad that they found these guys and just horrified that two separate people could commit such atrocities for no apparent Mm -hmm. reason. I mean, you kind of understand the serial killers and the mentality behind that and all that, but like two people that would randomly commit crimes in the same area in the same year within months of each other in the same way seems almost impossible. It's like a needle in a haystack kind of a situation, but it did happen and it did change a lot of us. We, a lot of us lost our innocence during that time period when we discovered that the world was filled with monsters. Yeah. And then it's not safe to the places that you you have gone and you grew up going to that to learn those places are not safe is it's a sobering thought. And Point Defiance Park is such a magical place and in the area of Tacoma where both of these crimes happened are just beautiful scenic areas and it is so sad that they had to be marred by this Mm -hmm. disgusting, these two men who committed these disgusting acts. All right, we're going to wrap the episode up for today. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, if you have any issues with this episode, any questions related to Jennifer and McDonald's, Shella's cases feel free to shoot us an email if you remember your own case growing up with any of these feel free to share we'd be more than happy to talk to you and absolutely stories Uh, social media we are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird wacky and wild cases good night podcast peeps stay safe keep it real and always live your best life Bye. Bye, guys.